Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for September 29th, 2021, and happy National Coffee Day to everyone out there who is hopefully extremely caffeinated. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and as always, each week we bring you a rundown of the week's news, and this week I am joined by both of my amazing co-hosts. Starting off, uh, Zach, how are you today? Hopefully you got yourself a nice uh, coffee to make it through the day. I sure did. I'm jitter-free this morning. Got my Joe, got my uh, my water. I'm feeling great. Outstanding. And of course, as always, uh, Stephen Foskett joining us as well. Stephen, did you fire up the espresso machine this morning and get yourself a little bit of uh, juice of Sappho, perhaps? You know me, Tom. I'm an iconoclast, so I'm going with the Southern Sweet Tea. Wow. Um, I, 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 I don't even know what to say. <laughs> so... Um, I do know what to say about the news, though, because we have a lot of great stories that we've lined up uh, today, including some exciting acquisition news that I'm sure you're going to want to dig right into. But first, we have to start off with uh, something that was kind of making the rounds a little bit in uh, late last week, because Microsoft found itself again in the news because of a bug in Exchange. Now, you may know about the auto discover feature that allows users to automatically configure their mail clients based on the domain name that they are using. It's magical when it works properly. However, when it's found to have a design flaw that causes the mail program to query top level domains looking for information and then, I don't know, leaks that information, maybe it's not so good. Uh, Gardacore AVP Amit Serper registered some of those auto discover domain names that he was seeing throwing being thrown around the internet and uh, set up some honeypots to discover some information because in the last four months, 372,000 uh, credentials have been leaked and almost 100,000 application credentials were discovered in the process. Now, as soon as the news hit the internet, Microsoft went into full damage control mode by issuing their usual placating statements while busily registering every auto-discovered domain that they could get their hands on that wasn't already taken. Um, Zach, did Microsoft get caught out on this one? Tom, I think they did. Uh, it's sad to say that this is now the, what, fourth, fifth time that Microsoft has been in this similar situation on the rundown in as many weeks. And uh, as you said, this uh, their responsive statement was rather placating and seemed very much like they were caught off guard. Uh, luckily for them, uh, as, as it mentions in the article in the show notes, this, uh, this vulnerability was found out by a white hat team. And, uh, so at least, you know, it wasn't being, uh, potentially used in the wild, but it probably was potentially being used in the wild. I mean, in most of these cases, uh, these, these people are, you know, being paid by the, uh, by the pen test, if you will. And, and they are out there and they're, they're doing their job, but for, you know, some hacker who's looking to either make their name or make a, a whole lot by coming away with someone's credentials, they're probably working just a little bit harder. And so I, I imagine that someone, you know, potentially could have found this one and, and, and made it into something worse, but at least right now, it seems, you know, to be that this, uh, this was just something that kind of luckily is hopefully just going to get swept under the rug and, and not come back out thanks to the work of, of Garda Tech. But until then, uh, you know, this is another one where we're just going to have to stay tuned and, and wait and see. And if, if you do use the auto discover feature, you know, uh, perhaps you might just need to, uh, 
make sure that your domain name is not similar to any of the, you know, big domain names of the tech industry, because you might be finding yourself getting a, uh, a little knock on your, your digital door. But, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, Microsoft, step it up, guys. Come on. We, we need you to, to do this. All right. Uh, Stephen, you know, it would appear that the latest issue to complicate this, you know, global chip shortage that we've been talking about, uh, about ad nauseum on this show, is now shifting to a lack of labor. Porting, according to a report from the IPC, 80% of manufacturers are reporting that they are having trouble finding qualified workers for their fabricators. Labor costs are up, and it's making it difficult for the manufacturers to pay wages that are needed to bring in the workers. Uh, those rising costs are also being passed along to the customers, who will most likely increase their prices as well instead of accepting a shrinking profit margin. The report doesn't see any significant changes coming into the market into the next six months, with lead times likely to, to continue increasing. Uh, Stephen, is the labor shortage going to prolong this situation? Absolutely. And I think that it's, it's not just your, your local favorite restaurant or uh, you know, your, uh, your plumber who can't find qualified workers at the prices they used to pay. It's uh, the chip fabs. And so we've talked on this show quite a lot about uh, all the crazy things that have affected the global chip shortage uh, situation, including uh, fires and floods and droughts. But, uh, you know, it comes as no surprise that labor is another issue that these companies are facing. And in fact, it's interesting to note uh, that according to this report, uh, this labor supply shortage is going to affect chip production, not just in uh, North America, but also in Asia and to a lesser extent in Europe as well. And if you think about some of the stories we've talked about in the last few weeks about companies planning uh, new gigafabs in the United States and gigafab in Europe and, and more production in, in Asia, well, who's going to work at all these factories, especially if you're not going to pay them well? I think the challenge is that finally the chickens have come home to roost on the global supply chain, and now uh, companies are going to have to start thinking about how they can pay more, how they can um, you know, reduce labor perhaps, but also how they can attract more people into these fields so that there's going to be somebody to keep the lights on at these fabs, because otherwise the global chip shortage will just continue and continue and continue. And we still won't have cars and washing machines and uh, new MacBooks or whatever it is that we like because nobody's going to be there to make the chips. Tom, uh, let's talk about some of these acquisitions. You mentioned uh, that there were a couple of them announced. So let's start off with our friends over at Kemp. The application delivery company announced that they're being acquired by Progress. Uh, this company also uh, has What's Up Gold, Chef, and other components and says that Kemp will continue to focus on DevOps solutions. Kemp has presented at a number of Tech Field Day events in the past and has shown an aptitude for applications in the security space. Kemp has over 100,000 deployments of their virtual load balancing software around the globe and has been integrating their acquisition of Flowmon into the product line over the past year. Uh, Tom, you're pretty familiar with Kemp. Uh, what do you think of this? So I think this is a good move for Kemp overall because they have a very wide deployment of, of their application delivery controller, you know, what we would probably call a load balancer, um, because they have embraced this whole idea of, of going virtual. And um, a lot of companies are still kind of on the fence. Do I really want to install hardware on premises for a hybrid cloud deployment? Kemp said, you know what? Cloud is the future and we're going to put everything in the cloud. 
and it's worked out well for them. And then that was enough for them to be able to acquire Flowmon to start integrating a lot of security and visibility into the product. And that was one of the things that we got to see earlier this year, both at Networking Field Day and Security Field Day, was a kind of different spin on, on how they're doing things. Now, the acquisition by progress is not what you would typically think of when a company gets acquired and just basically kind of folded in, because progress is really more of like a holding company. Think like a Tama Bravo, who has all of these cards in their hand in their deck if you will and they're able to kind of create some synergies between them so i would expect to see maybe a little bit more visibility coming in from the what's up gold side or because of the huge um emphasis that they place on chef the ability to you know kind of integrate some chef tools and things in there like that but overall it's it's really good for them because kemp was kind of that company you felt like was was definitely going it alone and going up against the big players in the market like the f5s and the a10s so for them to get a little bit more backing from progress hopefully will pay off handsomely by giving them enough to kind of tool up and and continue to kind of embrace this software-based load balancing application delivery controller market because one of the things that is not just a challenge from them from f5 and a10 is the fact that the software companies such as amazon and microsoft and vmware have um, solutions like this already included in their product and why would i go buy somebody else's when i can just tick a box and pay a little extra on my license and have it built in and ready to go so i hope that this ends up being something that will pay off for them down the road um, now, Stephen, uh, we've talked a lot about Nutanix on the show in the past, and there is a story that came out this week that they are partnering with Citrix to focus on making VDI deployments easier. Um, Nutanix will be running the Citrix VDI software on their HCI-based cloud platform service, and the idea is that it will be a partnered desktop-as-a-service offering uh, that will be able to be sold to companies that are still trying to figure out this whole work-from-home thing. Do I need to ship somebody a computer? Can I do this virtually? Do I have to incur any extra costs? And the move is likely going to be a big counter to VMware because we know that they use the Horizon desktop offering. And uh, with VMware coming up next week, I'm sure that we're going to get some news about Horizon and a lot of other things. So, Stephen, I know that Nutanix is always looking for new ways to get people to adopt their um, their HCI uh, solution. Is this a good partnership for them to do with Citrix? Yeah, absolutely. I think this all comes down to Nutanix, which is a company that is, uh, well, trying to make sure that they have a market for that matches their ambitions, uh, finding a new market that matches their ambitions. So uh, Tarkin Manor, who is the uh, chief commercial officer at Nutanix now, by the way, that's a story we missed back in 2019. Uh, he's a pretty high profile guy. He was the CEO of Wise, uh, which is a, was a competitor for Citrix a long time ago. Um, and, and then he was at uh, Nixenta. So sorry about that, Tarkin. Um, he's also a really funny guy. Um, anyway, he, he went over to uh, Nutanix uh, in 2019. And um, I think this is part of the process of essentially figuring out how Nutanix fits into the, uh, the wider world of commerce these days. Um, as has been pointed out, Nutanix has their own virtual desktop uh, offering called uh, Frame, which is a desktop as a service offering. I don't see a lot of conflict here because quite frankly, not a lot of people were using it. And um, I think that this is really kind of uh, symbolic of the new Nutanix. The company is going in a different direction now uh, than it was under their founding uh, team. 
And the new direction seems to be embracing uh, uh, third parties, embracing partners, embracing uh, applications uh, where people are instead of trying to focus on proprietary Nutanix-based solutions. And I think that's a good move. I think it matches what IT is looking for. And um, yeah, so I applaud this move. I think it's a good move for Nutanix. And I think that it will probably open the door to more sales of their uh, hyper-converged product, which is pretty much exactly what somebody like Tarkin wants to do. Turning to another story, uh, Zach, uh, you better batten down the hatches uh, because uh, Conti isn't going away anytime soon. The FBI, CISA, and NSA are all sounding the alarm that Conti is a growing threat. They've tracked over 400 attacks related to this particular strain of evil. The malware is operated by a Russian-based organization named Wizard Spider. Can you believe that? Wizard Spider? Um, and seems to be focused on hitting healthcare organizations, just like any good self-respecting Wizard Spider would. Uh, Zach, is the government trying to get ahead of a surge in infections or trying to scare the arcane arachnids into hiding? You know, Stephen, I think it's probably a, a, a healthy blend of both. Uh, as we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, the U.S. government is finally taking cybersecurity into a, a bit of a, you know, in, in a major way. Uh, they're, they're putting it in front of their, uh, their to-do list. And, you know, they've been, they've been calling out a lot of different organizations, and it seems like this uh, wizard spider is no different. Uh, it, you know, based off of the uh, reports, it seems like a lot of... Uh, a lot of this Conti malware is based off of similar, uh, you know, similar strains to things like Ryuk, which we saw come in, uh, you know, over the last year. And so these, you know, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say deadly, but it's, it's very scary uh, to be sure. So uh, it, it's certainly a good move to kind of put the, the public eye on this wizard spider group and, and kind of let everyone know that, Hey, the, uh, the big stick over in the U.S. government is watching, and uh, they're going to talk softly about it right now. But just wait until they start coming, because last time I, uh, you know, saw a battle between a stick and a spider, the spider lost, regardless of its magical powers. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it seems like a good move by the government to really just say, "Hey, we've got our eye on you," and uh, hopefully, just like with a lot of these uh, other, you know teams of, of malware developers this uh this kind of calls them out and you know hopefully they'll uh they'll stop doing what they're doing and kind of go scuttle back into the uh the recesses of wherever they came from but uh you know until then we're just gonna have to move on to another story because hot off of the story above of Gardecore's disclosure of the auto discovery bug comes some news that this cybersecurity company is getting picked up by Akamai the reported amount of the acquisition is $600 million, which would make it the second largest cybersecurity exit in Israel to date. The company has been around since 2013 and pivoted from offensive security to zero trust architecture and malware pr protection. CEO Pavel Gurvich is excited by the move and looks forward to the results. He and his executive team can get inside the content giant. Tom, what's the strategy behind this move? I think Akamai is starting to see that with a lot of the distributed networking that they have, that keeping it secure is very important because I'm just saying, if I thought like one of these wizard spider type people, I would stop trying to go after the Microsofts and the SolarWinds and all the other places in the world that I'm infecting. And I would infect the chain in the middle so that 
it was getting deployed from the content delivery network so that when the source checks their stuff and goes, well, we're fine, we don't know where it's coming from, that's you never think to look there. And so Akamai knows what they need. They need someone who can provide the zero trust architecture. They need a company that is kind of focused on finding these malware threats. And let's face it, Gardacore is really good at this as the story above mentioned. And uh, $600 million is definitely not a bad exit for, for the company. And if you read Pavel's blog, he'll tell you this isn't an exit. This is this is a strategy going forward. The question is going to be, you know, how much of their team sticks around after the golden parachute, golden handcuffs thing? How much of the solutions are going to get folded directly into Akamai? Does this allow Akamai to compete with other CDNs or other companies? It's honestly, like a company like Cloudflare, who offers similar technology, but not quite the same. Is this an, is this way that they're going to kind of build out maybe like a secure delivery pipeline for other things? There, there's a lot of possibility here. Um, but I'll tell you that with Gardacor being picked up by Akamai, if I was a company that was kind of doing my own zero trust thing, like, I don't know, like say Illumio, hmm, that phone's probably going to be ringing off the hook pretty soon because I think there's a lot of companies that are looking to partner up. Um, and by partner up, I mean write a check to uh, to get these kinds of protections. So I, I can't wait to see where this story develops. And uh, speaking of developing stories, we did have a couple that we wanted to take a closer look at this week. Um, some exciting news coming out of uh, some various sectors. And the first one actually came up yesterday. Uh, it was a big day for our friends over at Pure Storage. And if you were following along on gestaltit.com, you were able to check out the live blog of this announcement as it was unfolding live. Uh, they launched a couple of new offerings that kind of are encompassing what they see as their vision for the future of storage. Uh, the first was Pure Fusion. It's a self-surface storage as code platform designed for cloud storage consumers. Um, the next offering was around Portworks and it was Portworks Data Services. Now you may recall that Pure Storage had purchased Portworks a while back and this is kind of helping with things like day two operations, um, software infrastructure in the environment, those kinds of things. Now the funny thing about that is, is that all of the announcements that were made yesterday were all software based, which may have you scratching your head because Pure Storage, isn't that a company that's really focused on hardware? Um, that could shift a signal that software is eating the storage world too. And uh, Stephen, I wanted you to kind of kick off on this because you were part of the live blog uh, that was doing the coverage. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, thanks, Tom. As you mentioned, uh, Pure Storage is a company that we've been very close to for a long time. Uh, you know, full disclosure, they have uh, been sponsoring and presenting at Tech Field Day events and sponsoring Gestalt IT projects for basically the entire life of, life of the company. If you go back uh, all the way back, you can see presentations from them from 10 years ago, from five years ago, from last year and from this year. And in fact, this year, we, we heard about a lot of these things before they were announced. Uh, we even had an embargoed presentation about one of these situations that we just published yesterday uh, because we were holding it until the announcement was made. So uh, we're pretty excited here. As a storage-focused uh, person, I say that this is really what the industry is, is heading towards. This is what the industry is doing. If you look at the big storage companies out there, uh, everyone from Dell uh, with their EMC uh, acquisition to uh, HPE with their uh, numerous storage acquisitions, NetApp, uh, Hitachi, 
and of course, pure storage, all of them are trying to get into integrated storage, integrated storage management, cloud storage, uh, Kubernetes, uh, trying to refocus themselves as a data management company. That's awfully hard to do because frankly, uh, when you make widgets and you sell widgets, it's really hard to uh, pivot into the widget as a service business without losing your sales of widgets. Uh, many of us, including my, myself, have uh, thought that perhaps this might be easier for a big guy like HPE or Dell to pivot into as a service because, of course, they've got all sorts of other widgets that they sell. So it's not going to hurt as hard when their storage uh, systems are being impacted by a shift in focus. But, you know, frankly, maybe I was wrong about that because if you look at who's doing this well, You've got Pure Storage and NetApp, who are really storage companies. Uh, they're really focused on bringing storage into the next level. And, and frankly, it's been a really interesting situation to watch those two companies, especially, try to figure out how to go uh, move to the next level when it comes to integrated data management and especially software and APIs. Well, Pure scored a coup when they picked up Portworks. Because frankly, I've known those folks for the longest time as well. In fact, the team behind Portworks presented at Tech Field Day number one in 2009. That's how long I've known these people. They are sharp and they know all about storage. They know all about integration, data management. And so when Portworks came out, I was like, aha, this is the thing. This is the thing that's gonna help move storage into the future. And whoever ends up holding this bag is gonna be in a really good position. Well, that's pure. And today, or yesterday at the announcement, we saw exactly what the result of this was. So rather than introduce a new storage array, a flash storage system or something, Pure introduced three new things that are really sort of one new thing. So let's talk about those three. We've got Pure Fusion, which adds storage management and deployment uh, capabilities with an API uh, along with security and performance and capacity management and all that, um, all integrated into an API so that uh, the user of the storage solution can completely integrate this storage into their application uh, environment or their, or their application platform. Um, great idea. Everybody knows that this is what's needed. The problem is uh, making it happen. And I sure hope that Pure Fusion ends up being uh, successful for pure storage companies. Uh, the second uh, announcement was uh, Portworks Data Services. Now this is interesting because as I mentioned, Portworks is already the de facto standard for integrated storage in Kubernetes environments. Portworks Data Services allows Portworks to roll out database as a service, including most popular platforms, things like Cassandra and Couchbase and Mongo, Progress, MySQL, et cetera. And all of these things can be provisioned just like the Portworx storage, which is huge. It also includes management and manageability and security features. Finally, we saw a rev of Pure One, which originally was just a portal to access statistics on your system, but is now a fully integrated platform, a sort of a self-service Pure as a service platform that includes, uh, no kidding, MLOps and uh, the ability to deploy uh, secure uh, storage as a service from a web browser environment. Now, all these things together really are the roadmap to where storage needs to go in the future. 
And I am really excited, as I said, to see this happening in storage, which has traditionally been a very hardware-centric business. Zach, uh, from an outsider's perspective, what do you think of this? Yeah, Stephen, clearly I don't have the comprehensive expertise in storage as you, but just looking at this kind of holistically, uh, I, I mean, it seems like a great move from pure overall. I take you know, two of the biggest storage as a service uh, offerings today from Amazon and Google. They, you know, in that same sort of building off of widgets have uh, have made it, you know, commoditized storage in a way that anyone can, you know, consume and use as they want and wherever they want to. So, you know, obviously Pure isn't at the same level, but given that they already have a, you know, beautifully built out portfolio of hardware, they can just build on top of that now. They don't have to, they don't have to, you know, intake anyone else's technologies or reinvent the wheel. They already have, you know, a nice, beautiful foundation to build off of. And then from there, they can just make their existing, uh, you know, flash blades and other storage arrays that are, work very well and use those in a way that anyone can use, which makes them more desirable. Uh, you know, will they be able to take on the Googles and the Amazons? Maybe one day. This is the right step forward, uh, in my opinion. You know, it really helps them to just make their offering more accessible for a wider range of people because, you know, you don't have to be an expert storage admin to go in and, you know, rearrange your server stack with this, you know, new blade or what have you. You can just say, hey, I want X and I want it now and uh, Pure will provide. And, you know, they, as a part of this announcement, I also read that they increased their availability zones, making it, you know, wide, uh, just more widely available to a wider audience. And in this very decentralized cloud-driven world, that's the way to get people to use your stuff. So I think it's a great move. Uh, my, my props to Pure for sure. Uh, let's let's move on to our last story of the day. For uh, and I'm I'm very curious what what you two have to say about it because it's an interesting one. As the FCC announced this week, they will be starting a program worth up to 1.9 billion dollars to help remove networking equipment from Chinese companies Huawei and ZTE. Hmm. The guidelines state that the carriers with fewer than 10 million customers, including schools, libraries, and healthcare organizations, can apply to have their costs. Uh, for re remove and replacement of the equipment reverse, reimbursed. Uh, the program only affects costs incurred between April 18th and June 2020. The fund is designed to help offset the outcry from companies that have been caught in the middle of the dispute between the telecom companies and the U.S. government, which has designated the companies as national security threats and halted the sales of their equipment. To those wishing to apply for the funds, uh, you have until January 14th, 2022. Is this going to help ease the pain of ripping out the relatively new equipment? Hmm. Uh, and does this also mean that there won't be any time to go back on the decision anytime soon? What do you guys have to say? So I'll jump in here because I think this is kind of fascinating that the U.S. FCC, uh, which, by the way, is the company that operates the, the national E-rate program, has basically said, uh, remember when we warned you a couple of years ago that we were probably going to be doing some things to Huawei and ZTE and you still didn't listen to us because they came to you and said, hey, we'll sell you this equipment cheap. Just we want to get it in your, your system. Yeah, we're going to need you to rip that out and we're going to pay you to do it um, because let's be fair that's really what the only driver was for those of you who don't know huawei was making very big inroads into schools into libraries into healthcare, and they were really really selling hard 
Like they were, they were going out, they were offering cut rate deals. And uh, the urban legend was, is that if Huawei salesperson showed up in your organization, and it wasn't very long thereafter that a, uh, an unmarked plane vehicle with a gentleman wearing sunglasses pulled up and uh, started asking a whole bunch of questions. But the, the, the impetus here is they need to get all this equipment out because it's not enough for them to have designated these companies as national security threats. They really don't want this equipment running anywhere and they're willing to pay to get it out of there. So this kind of says that the companies that maybe bought some of this equipment because they were looking to do an upgrade, will will pay you back for getting rid of it and getting like for like replacement. However, if like for like isn't available, this will allow you to do a bit of an upgrade. So for those companies that were using Huawei as a base station for their 3G or possibly even LTE equipment, if you can't get that stuff anymore, Woohoo, 5G time. Um, but I think more importantly, as mentioned at the end of the, the story, this is a huge signal to Huawei and, and ZTE that the government isn't going back on this decision anytime soon. Like I could totally see one of those kind of negotiation tactic things where we're going to ban you until you change something that we don't like. And then we'll graciously agree to lift the ban. And it's just a game of politics and tit for tat. You don't do that when you're putting $2 billion on the line to get rid of this stuff. This to me says that despite any changes, which Huawei or ZTE may or may not be willing to make, they're not going back on this. They, they want either you know American companies in there or they want other companies that are friendly to America to be in there. And I don't know how China is going to react to this because that's the other side of the coin, as we've seen recently with the news of the Huawei CFO being arrested in Canada. And then she was released last week and sent back home after agreeing to, you know, fraud charges or something. But the long and short of it is, is that this battle is only going to get bigger as we start seeing companies actually ripping this equipment out. And just remember that this is the government we're talking about. So when you apply for that reimbursement, you might get it by 2025 if you're lucky because those payouts do seem to take a while and there's lots of paperwork that has to be involved in that. So if you're gonna take advantage of the program, file the paperwork now so you beat the rush, but don't get antsy about pulling that equipment out anytime soon until you're absolutely ready to go. Um, you know, Stephen, we've talked a lot about kind of this interplay of politics and tech for a while. What's your read on this kind of news coming out? Yeah, I think it's important to know that this is, uh, as you said, a continuation of uh, the American strategy that began under the Trump administration and is now continuing under uh, Biden. And uh, so this is a result of declaring that Huawei and ZTE are basically non grata on U.S. telecom network networks. And it's the next step. You know, let's get rid of this equipment. I think that the, uh, the U.S. is trying to send a signal here. Uh, in a very practical way. Um, let's get rid of the equipment. Let's do that. But also, uh, let's send a signal not just to American companies that they have to be careful who they procure stuff from, but uh, worldwide companies. Now, it's important to understand that Huawei and ZTE are selling uh, all over the world, especially in the 5G upgrade space. And a lot of countries have standardized on Huawei and ZTE equipment uh, throughout their telecom infrastructure. 
Now, some of that stuff is being walked back, especially given the uh, once the United States made this decision and given the implications of the financial barricades against these two companies from American from the American government. It's caused them to be less competitive. It's caused them to lose contracts and it's caused uh, other competitors to look a lot better all around the world. I think this program is a continuation of that, and it's a continuation of the signal that the U.S. means business when it comes to uh, stopping the business of these two uh, government-connected telecom companies. Now, what is the real practical application of this? Well, frankly, um, it's important to realize that if a company is going to pull out their Huawei or ZTE equipment, they're going to replace it with something. What are they going to replace it with? Um, Let's say that whatever it is, it's going to have a lot of American-made stuff in it. And so this is a case as well of the United States government effectively subsidizing American telecom companies in the global marketplace. And a $1.9 billion uh, fund equals well over a $1.9 billion of orders for equipments, uh, equipment and services uh, that's going to last for years and years, as you mentioned. Uh, and that will help American businesses compete in the 5G upgrade, which, frankly, many American companies have been lagging in, uh, especially given the cutthroat competition from China. So I'd say there's an economic aspect here. There's a national security aspect. There's, of course, a diplomatic aspect. And I don't expect China to be very happy that the United States in the new administration is continuing the policies of the former administration when it comes to aggressively acting against these telecom giants. So, yep, we're in a global game of chess and it's continuing. Yes, that it is. And if you wanna catch the next moves that happen in all of these games of chess that we've been talking about each and every week, make sure you tune in at 12.30 Eastern time on Wednesday for the latest episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We uh, gather the news each week and and put it together, and you know we follow up on the stories that we think are the ones that you're going to see again and again, and we try to bring a little levity to your hump day. Um, we have a lot of other things going on, though, not just the rundown. Uh, Zach, what are some of the things that you've been working on that everybody should totally check out? Well, Tom, uh, as as you probably well know, the uh, our networking field day event happened just a couple weeks ago, and I am covering all of the uh, wonderful presentations that happened there. There's plenty of great companies that presented lots of new and exciting technologies, so definitely go and check it out. Cool. And uh, Stephen, what are you up to? Well, we're deep in the throes of season two or season three of utilizing AI. Uh, yesterday, we posted a podcast featuring a very familiar guest, somebody by the name of Tom Hollingsworth, talking about how uh, AI and machine learning is affecting the network management space. So please do check that out at uh, utilizing-ai.com. And uh, please do give that a subscribe in your favorite podcast app if you want to learn more about how AI is coming to the enterprise. Outstanding. And uh, as Zach mentioned, uh, we have lots of great videos on the Tech Field Day YouTube channel of the networking field day presentations that happened uh, previously. And we also have another great event coming up. Uh, Security Field Day will be happening October 20th through the 22nd. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. And in the meantime, head over to gestaltit.com and read some of the great articles that we've been publishing. See the live blog from the Pure Storage uh, launch announcement yesterday. Uh, you can check out all the news there. And you can uh, follow along on our YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo for some more fun stuff.
Uh, but we'll be back next week at 12.30 Eastern Time with more news that you don't want to miss. Until then, thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope that you have an enjoyable Wednesday and a good rest of your week.